to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Leah Lem. And I'm your other host, Cole Prima. Thanks for joining us today. Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine is a program where we talk to Native folks from around Minnesota just to hear about their gifts and what's going on in their lives. So how you doing, bro? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> Good to see you again after our Zoom on Thanksgiving with yes. the family. On your welcome day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, your welcome day. Um, but yeah, just, you know, um, it's a new week. Just the grind starts again. You know how it is. I do. And you know what I have every Monday night? What's that? Ojibwe language class. That's that's right. <laughs> so all day on Monday, no matter what else I have going on, I'm like trying to desperately catch up on my um, my learnings. <laughs> How is that? It is awesome. So I'm taking the language class through the Minneapolis American Indian Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do it over Zoom. And there's just like a ton of people in the class. But it, it, it's so much information every week. Yeah. And it just seems like these sentences are getting like longer and longer and longer. <laughs> I can't keep up, but it's good. Yeah. Luckily, they they uh, record the classes so I can watch them later. Oh, sure. Otherwise, I don't know what I would do. I mean, I, I can usually get on, but it's Monday nights is just <laughs> yeah. a tough day to try to spend two hours on class, uh, in class. So Nice. But it's fun. It's good. It's good. Yeah, I um, I would like to get back into that at some point. I did do a couple years at the University of Minnesota, Dennis Jones. And uh, yeah, that was really great. It's, of course, if you're not speaking at it all the time, it's you're going to lose it. It's, it really stinks. Just like any other language. <laughs> You've got to be able to speak it. Yeah. And that's my thing. Like, it takes so long. And I'm just like, you know, uh, uh, mm. uh, over every word. It feels like until it just hopefully it becomes natural one yeah. of these days. But I'm I feel like every time I start learning a Jibwemoin, it's like I'm a I've been be- I'm a beginner. Yeah. Every single time I take it off. Exactly. Uh, we've been hearing so hopefully. we've been hearing words, you know, as since we were kids, and we've been exposed to that. But still, like, there's just so much to it. And it's, yeah. It's very daunting. It's so awesome. Yeah. So rich. So complex. Just. Ugh, beautiful. And that actually leads us to what we're going to be talking about today, which is language. Preservation and continuation of these rich native languages like Ojibwe, Ojibwe just to name one in the Midwest, is of course of utmost importance, especially during a time where a lot of native people are who grew up speaking it, you know, in their, their first language are getting older and older. And a lot mm-hmm. of native speakers nowadays are second language speakers, like we hope to be. Like I, <laughs> Second language fluent speakers, yes. But of course the work, uh, you know, continues in saving the language and, you know, keeping it going for the next generation. So real quick, Mm. our dad, Bill Primo, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of on this language subject, took part in a recent project called Anjibimadizing, which is a project by our tribe, our band, Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe, Mm -hmm. and published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press. And in the project, Anjibimadizing, 16 first speakers, dad included, partnered up with linguists, teachers, and Ojibwe language experts making new books mm-hmm. or new literature for Ojibwe language <laughs> learners like moi. <laughs> Wait, that's French. <laughs> um, and our guest today was actually also a part of that project. So 
today. Uh, we are going to be talking with Dr. Anton Troyer. He is a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, and he's the author of numerous books. I believe the last count is about 19. His latest book, The Language Warrior's Manifesto, addresses language revitalization, and I can't wait to dig into that topic. Uh, he's presented all around the country, Canada, internationally, and he's joining us today. And here he is. Welcome, Anton. Bonjour. Hey, everybody. Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Very good. I guess, uh, you know, just, just to start out, uh, could you just please introduce yourself? Yes, my name's Anton Troyer. I'm professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University. Nice. Uh, how, how are you doing uh, during all of the, you know, the pandemic and all of that? Yeah, we're doing pretty good. I'm, uh, I've been living Zoom life like so many others. And I have nine kids, so I've got five out the door, four here, and a couple of the others who are more recently launched are, you know, coming and going a little bit. But I do appreciate living in rural Minnesota, so we have a little bit of room to stretch in Rome and, and whatnot. But yeah, it's been a scary time with COVID. Yeah. You know, even a lot of the elders we work with and things like that, it's been, uh, it's been touchy navigating. I know you just you recently released a book called The Language Warriors Manifesto. Can we just get into that a little bit? Like, what did you set out to accomplish with that book? You know, um, I get to wear a lot of different hats in my work. So they, to me, they all make sense and connect with one another. I, in part, do racial equity, cultural competency work. I, you know, I'm a professor of Ojibwe. I'm trained as a historian and write history books too. But the Language Warriors Manifesto was really at the, at the center of how all of this comes together for me. So in part, you know, I'm telling my story as someone who has come back to his language and culture and how I did it. Um, in part, I'm telling the story of a large group of people who've been working really hard at indigenous language revitalization for a long time and are starting to have some success and answer the question how we did it. I'm in part even just addressing the importance of indigenous language and culture revitalization, which I think not everyone sees, and drawing the connections between this work and some of the really big issues of our time dealing with race relations and inequities. Uh, and, and I really believe that there are tools in indigenous cultural toolboxes that can help all of us evolve our world into a better and more just place. And that, you know, language is one of those critical threads in the tapestry, um, but there are many others too, and they, they intersect. What does it mean uh, to you to be a language warrior and how is it different than, you know, simpl simply preserving language? Right. I, you know, preservation is, you know, could be recordings, could be mm. books, tools. Um, but for a language to live, it has to live in the hearts and minds of human beings. And, you know, to me what does it mean to be a warrior? It's very different from being a, a soldier uh, where it's all about conforming in the effort to 
you know, achieve some kind of victory. And I, I think the way of a warrior is different. And this doesn't discount anything that our, you know, men and women in uniform or in other sorts of conflicts may have experienced, but involves self-sacrifice, the application of one's individual gifts, talents, and abilities to advance some sort of greater good. And I, I think there are many people who would fit the bill of language warriors uh, who are devoting their time and energy and effort to not just preserving, but revitalizing indigenous languages and cultures. So you mentioned you have nine kids. Um, can you talk about how language plays a role in their lives or how Ojibwemuin plays a role in their lives? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, it's never dull around here. I, I mean, language is, is a unique or represents the unique worldview of a people. And one of my jobs as a dad is to try to connect my children to the unique worldview that our ancestors have had and mm -hmm. worked and sacrificed so much to preserve for us, not just as cultural patrimony, but a toolbox for solving the problems that they could only imagine we'd face. Um, and for me, running, you know, herd on my crew, I try to use the language with everything I can in our daily lives. I also, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual leader too. I officiate at funerals and medicine dance and things like that. So I will pack up my whole crew and, um, you know, under normal conditions, we would spend about four weeks camped out, you know, on the grounds of the, for our medicine dance, where they're in pretty much an Ojibwe language environment. And I think it's been really identity creating for them to be connected to those things. My oldest daughter, uh, Madeline, who um, probably had the most one-on-one -on -one time with me, you know, and also the most like target, language rich learning environment where I was using Ojibwe with her all the time um, has now like graduated from college and you know applied herself to further study of the language so she's actually part of a team of um, fluent speakers and transcribers who's working with me on and other elders in Mille Lacs um, recording stories and um, she's now you know published in their most recent three books and stuff like that so it's really heartening seeing a kid kind of operate with the language at that level. But it's not a guarantee and it's not easy. You know, frankly, one of the biggest predictors of the kind of language that your child will have is not the language that you speak to your kid. It's the language that they use with their peers. And this is why most immigrants, monolingual, non-English speaking immigrants, you know, will use that language with their children at home and their kids will grow up bilingual and usually will not be passing that language on to their own children as 
reliably and successfully because it is the peer language that is a more powerful determinant. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It does happen with immigrants. It happens with indigenous people too, but it just becomes a, a bigger challenge. So that's where some of the other work that's going on with language immersion schools and stuff is so exciting. That's really fascinating. I never even thought about that, but mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. And today we're hearing from Anton Troyer, a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University and an author of many books. He grew up in Leech Lake and works to preserve the Ojibwe language and culture and a lot more. So before you got on, um, we talked just a little bit about Anjibimadizing, and which our dad, Bill Primo, was a part of as one of the storytellers um, in the project. And so I'm taking Ojibwe Moen um, through the Minneapolis American Indian Center just um, over Zoom because I'm up in Grand Rapids. <laughs> and uh, it's just a really wonderful way to continue learning. And actually, I like I was saying at the beginning with my brother, um, every time I try to start learning Ojibwe Moen again, I feel like I'm a beginner over and over and over again. Um, but, you know, when the books came out just a couple months ago, I got them in the mail from my dad and I looked in them and I was like, oh my God, there's so many wonderful stories in here. Um, I don't understand a thing. <laughs> you know, I might see like a little word here or there that I understand. And then um, just after a couple months of semi-intense learning, um, I just opened them up again today and looked in and was like, I recognize more words. <laughs> <laughs> More words anyway. Um, not a terrible amount still. I can't go through and, you know, read a story. But so I feel really, really inspired when I open those books and know that there are these gifts in them that I could someday understand more you know, the more and more I learned my own language. So if you want, could you just talk maybe a little bit about the project and maybe how you make learning fun and efficient and successful? Yeah, I can I can tell you first of all, you know, it's been a real honor working with your dad. He's a lot of fun. And <laughs> you know, yes, he, he's full of crazy stories and you know, it's just nonstop laugh working with him all the time. So here's maybe it'll help to give a little background on how we kind of got into these projects in general. So <clears throat> at one point uh, I was called to a meeting in Mille Lacs, and I've been brought into a few of these before, although this one was pretty unique, um, simply because I've published a lot of books and I've been a professor for a long time. And so when people are trying to do stuff on Ojibwe language, I, I often get a phone call. But when I came to the meeting, you know, they had some stacks of government regulations and grants and stuff like that. And they said, would you be willing to go through this uh, we have some overages from grants and we want to do something for language and I asked how much money they had left over from grants and then my jaw dropped and I said, listen, you guys, um, you're not going to have an opportunity like this very often. We've identified 25 fluent first speakers of Ojibwe left in Mille Lacs. That's it. 25. And... 
why don't instead of like pushing them harder to teach more kids, you know, why don't we set them up to teach people our language for hundreds of years to come? Let's work on some projects that have real lasting value. And let's develop some kids books and develop more than that, a literary tradition for what was formerly an oral language. Let's develop Rosetta Stone so we can push, you know, every one of these wonderful speakers out to every single Malax band member anywhere on planet Earth through their phone. And we will overcome some of the biggest barriers for language learning, which include time and space. Not everybody's living in a house with a fluent speaker. And you can amplify those voices and many people can engage with them in many different formats. And so we embarked on a journey uh, and it's still a journey that is underway right now. So um, Rosetta Stone, we had a little bit of a uh, slowdown because of COVID. It just wasn't safe to convene everyone and do all of the filming. So we've been working on the scripts and we've been you know, developing content and material. And once we go into production, we'll kind of do a little catch up. We go into film production parts. Um, but there will be an app that'll have Happy Primo there and others, um, you know, doing video demos and, you know, with vocab lists and expansion activities that will be able to interact with you and correct your pronunciation as you interact with the app in real time. Uh, and I, I think it will provide a high level of engagement. And this will be a six year um, development. There'll be one year released every year for six years. So this will be more than any other indigenous language has done. They did two years with Muscogee Creek. They did a year with Diné, Navajo. Um, and we'll have six years. So I think it will be a major contributor for language revitalization. It still doesn't replace fluent speakers. And then the books, um, you know, we, I convened a team and started doing this kind of work a, a long time ago. But it was a bit scattershot because we... You know, when we got a grant or when we could get people together, you know, we'd get a little spurt and kicked out a few books. So we did four um, that we had produced through um, Wigwas Press uh, or the Minnesota Humanities Center. And so, so it was really exciting to have, you know, a lot more support and to be a lot more regimented about it. And so then we got uh, cranking and... Uh, yeah, the first three books are out. We've got two more in, that are going into production here shortly. And once COVID eases up, I expect us to be able to do probably three books a year for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, I can never count on, you know, all the different types of support to be in place every single year. But right now it looks like there's really great support um, at the political level, financial level, you know, all these different things. So I think we will be able to build a library uh, for the kind of world that we want our kids to live in. That's awesome. I think both those projects are so, are so amazing. Um, how does, how does a project like Rosetta Stone, like how do they, how does that a partnership happen? How does that project come to, come to be? Oh, we, we reached out to them um, 
And the way Rosetta Stone does things has really shifted and changed. They used to kind of have a formula and a template and work with a few major world languages. Um, but those templates and formats don't work with indigenous languages that well. Uh, and so increasingly, you know, they'd been changing over the past, you know, 40 years too, to the point where they say they'll work with any language on the planet. Um, and they do have some like proprietary software for their artificial intelligence engine, the kind of the stuff that helps um, correct pronunciation and grammar as you interact with the app and stuff like that. But essentially, we have to develop all of the curriculum lesson plans, you know, scope the content and sequence it and all that kind of stuff. So they don't do that for us. And you wouldn't want them to anyways. They, they'd be ascribing European language thought patterns over our language or something. So um, so it's taken a lot of work, um, and it's really just beginning. You know, it's underway, but um, yeah, so even developing the scripts or the, the overarching, you know, patterns for, for what we're going to talk about in years one, two, three, four, five, six, um, all of that takes a lot of thought and a lot of labor. And then, I mean, each little thing, I mean, you have to feed thousands of hours of audio content. In, in there, which means we have to do lots of audio recording. We have to, you know, we're staging kind of video sequences around wild racing and things like that. So, you know, we have to, you know, we've been onboarding a team and then, you know, scramble them to the landings with a full, you know, video production team and stuff like that. So some of that is we pushed until COVID eases up. But yeah, it'll be pretty exciting when it's done and there'll be just so much more expansion material from there. Um, you know, the nice parts too with something like Rosetta Stone, every time you get a new update to your operating system with iPhone or anything else, it'll carry over. Uh, and, you know, there's a, be like a 10 year service contract and we'll be able to re up that whenever we need to, I imagine. You mentioned um, the pronunciation helper or pronunciation feedback mm -hmm. that seems like such a game changer to be able to learn a language i know that's one of the main like stumbling points um it's you know like there's so many uh syllables and consonants going on in front of me like yeah. as a language learner like where's the stress or not yeah. and um all those things so that's that's pretty fantastic yeah, and uh, you know, languages are complex, and there's so many parts to them. So, you know, developing your ear, listening to the language, like a kid's going to hear a language for a year before they say their first word. Mm. You know, and so you need to have the log, log the airtime. There's you know pronunciation. There's grammar. Ojibwe has a very complex grammar system. You know, syntax, how you put narrative together, is a whole nother game. And so there are a lot of pieces to this that require a lot of thought. And I think something else that's helpful with a partnership with someone like Rosetta Stone is that um, they've had to think about a lot of this for a lot of time. So they ask really good questions that kind of help us sharpen up our own um, approach and make sure we're not missing something. But ultimately, we're, we're developing this. You know, people in Mille Lacs are developing this. That's so cool. I feel like I'll know I know the language well enough, or at least um, have made a significant advances in my knowledge, if I can make a joke. Right. 
<laughs> and the language. <laughs> How long will that take? <laughs> <laughs> You'll be able to do it pretty quick. There's all kinds of, you know, Ojibwe, a lot of speakers will say it's funnier in Ojibwe <laughs> because there's this deeper meaning behind words, the smallest meaningful parts of words that are known to everyday speakers. And so it really lends itself to, you know, um, double entendre and, you know, joking around and, and uh, you know, thick description. They'll also say it's like, when you tell a story, it's like you're painting a picture because there's this thick description as well as what the words are associated with. So yeah, it it does lend itself to that. And, uh, and that's one of the cool things that starts happening when someone goes a little deeper with language work. When, when you have enough base that your, um, you know, your knowledge of the roots of words progresses to the point where you'll hear a word you've never heard before and you still understand what it means. Mm. Mm-hmm. That actually um, kind of brings me to my next question and you kind of uh, talked about it a little bit, but what do you love about the Ojibwe language? Oh man, I, there's so many, so many things that I love. And, and honestly, this is probably the, one of the most important questions to put to people because, you know, what does it take to be a good parent? You know, you could give somebody a book, like what to expect the first year or something like that. But really what it is, is just falling in love with your kid. If you fall in love with your kid, you will be motivated to figure out how to deal with poopy diapers and puke and up all night and fevers. And you'll, you'll solve those problems really effectively no matter what anybody writes in a book or tells you. So it is that falling in love with your kid part that is the most essential to being an effective parent. And, you know, to be effective with learning a language or teaching it, it's the same thing. If you fall in love with your language, you'll be motivated to figure the rest of it out. For me, I think um, the way that language conveys worldview has been so powerful for me. Uh, You know, sometimes they'll use examples like our word for an elder, gichiyaya'a, literally means great being. Our word... For an elderly woman, mindemuye means one who holds things together and describes the role of the family matriarch. If you're operating in Ojibwe, you don't have to say respect your elders. It's kind of built right in with any word you could use to talk about them. And, you know, in English, it's so different. You know, what do you got? Old woman, elderly woman, aged woman, hag, you know? And, and who wants their elder on the cover of Cosmo, right? And so there's a way that language reflects the values of a people, but it also shapes the values of a people. And I just find so much in that, you know, like as you dig deeper into the meanings behind native names, our clan system, you know, the words we have for places, there's just so much richly textured um, worldview. It, it's beautiful. And frankly, you know, white folk were so busy being mean to each other and beating each other up for some thousands of years before they took it to the rest of the world um, 
that everybody needs healing, white folk included, but the colonial way of solving problems has some real limitations. It's usually a pretty violent solution and we all need more healing. And I really believe that embedded in our language, in other indigenous languages too, are unique worldviews and unique ways of solving problems. And that although we deserve to exist and thrive with living languages for our own rights, that, that we can also help pollinate the garden everyone else is trying to harvest from and influence and shape the approach that people outside of our cultural group have towards solving problems and getting along. And uh, we have a lot to teach the rest of the world. And our language provides a powerful set of tools for doing that. Wonderful. Thank you. That's great. Um, I was curious, um, when did when did you start learning Ojibwe and when did it like really click with you? And like, was there a moment when you're like, oh, I just, I finally get it or something like that. Or maybe you're dreaming in Ojibwe or. Yeah, I don't know. I still feel like when I grow up, I'm going to have this all figured out. <laughs> Even though I'm 51 years old now. Um, so, I mean, I did have language exposure when I was growing up. I got hauled around to ceremonies. I met a lot of fluent speakers. Uh, my mom was intentional about trying to teach us culture and, you know, stuff like that. But I don't think I valued any of that very highly. You know, I was trying to run away. Um, and it, was, it took me leaving home to realize how important home was. And it wasn't until really I had finished college that I really applied myself seriously to language learning. And I, I kind of stumbled into it a bit by accident. I, I wanted to go through ceremony I, and I sought out Archie Mose, who was born in 1901. He was an important spiritual leader. And, you know, I came to his house. He'd never met me before. And, I, and I, when I finally found him, he opens the door and he says, oh, I've been waiting for you. And I said, what? How could you be, he be waiting for me? You know, he doesn't even know who I am. And I don't know, I, I must have looked like someone from this dream he had. And, but for some reason, he just opened up. And he, um, you know, he was so kind and good to me and put me to work very quickly, hauling him around to funerals or whatever. And I ended up crashing on his couch for months on end and pestering him incessantly. And um, I learned a lot about our culture and our language together. He could speak English, although he preferred to speak Ojibwe and his English was a little clunky. I remember driving him to the bank to cash a check and he, he uh, couldn't endorse his check. Um, still one of the best educated people I'd ever met. And I fell in love with our language and I, I wanted more. I still viewed myself as um, an imperfect carrier. And I, I was always just trying to position myself to learn. I, I was never, I'd never set a goal to like be a professor of Ojibwe or something like that. Um, and I'd never set a goal to be somebody who, you know, officiates at ceremonies. It was kind of like Forrest Gump. You know, every time I went somewhere I was running, I never thought it would take me anywhere. It was kind of like that. And then at some point, 
Um, I did start dreaming in our language and, you know, thinking in our language. And when I made those transitions, I, I really thought I was kind of reaching some kind of transition point. I still feel like I must sound like a ninth grader or something, you know, sometimes. And I, I'm still um, learning things and in awe of our really great cultural carriers and first speakers of the language. But um, at the same time, I realize that I have a contribution to make and I, you know, have unloaded the psychological baggage that was in the way and have simply stepped up to lean in and, and do what I can to advance our language. And I find great personal fulfillment in that um, and in the way that it segues or connects with so many dimensions of our culture. Uh, many, many people find genuine healing, you know, physical healing, emotional healing, belonging, through our cultural toolbox. And so helping people through that uh, and to that has been really, really powerful. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today you're hearing from Anton Troyer, a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University and an author of many books. He grew up in Leech Lake and he grew up in Leech Lake and works to preserve the Ojibwe language, culture, and a lot more. Um, so, Anton, you, you were speaking earlier about a, a transition period um, when you're starting, you know, to learn and to um, dream in Ojibwe. Um, how did you, you know, realize your gifts and your talents with the language and and everything else, and that you wanted to share that with the Native community? Yeah, I. I really was just the, the most avid student. I, I think even when I started going, um, you know, pursuing a career, like at some point I ran out of money just following Archie around everywhere. And I, I ended up taking a job at Bemidji State University for a while and student support, and then I applied to grad school. And when I did that, you know, I ended up applying to a history program. I thought, well, I'm not a fluent speaker. It's, you know, I wasn't born and raised that way. It's not up to me to do this, but I'll do history. And then I can use the language now and do oral histories and record and transcribe and translate. And um, so I was just excited to study all that stuff. And then I was brought in to um, edit the Oshkabewis Native Journal and start publishing a lot of that work. And it kind of helped launch me into career work. And as soon as I could get back home, well, I jumped on that, and that was a professorship in Ojibwe. Uh, that's the career part. I think I still saw myself as a student culturally, too, and I, there are a couple of break points for me. One was actually the birth of my first kid, and I had you know an elder lined up to come and do the talk for the four-day feast, and he just didn't show, you know, and I was stuck there, like watching the sun starting to drop thinking, I guess I have to do this, you know? And so I was kind of started doing pipe ceremonies and naming ceremonies and, you know, things like that as, as people came to me for that. And similarly, you know, Archie Mose had a remarkably long life, but he didn't live forever. And, you know, in the mid 1990s, 
um, when he passed away, then it was it was either step up and do something or let it die. And I ended up responding to that call eventually. Uh, you know, there was actually another guy over there named Jumbo Wake Me Up, who is a, uh, a great cultural carrier over there. And at first I, I declined. I said, listen, you know, Jumbo's older than me. He's been there longer than me. Um, and so we tried to work with him for a while too, but he, he didn't live that much longer. And there was pretty much, yeah, pretty much had to step up and start officiating or, you know, let that lodge fail. And so that kind of segued me into doing more, you know, officiating and ceremony work and talking at funerals. And I was terrified, I think, in those those days about doing any of it. But I found that the many other Ojibwe speakers and, and cultural carriers were deeply supportive and encouraging and kind. And because they... I think Archie was, you know, he was old enough to be Jim Clark's dad or Albert Churchill's dad. He's pretty old. So I think people deferred to him a lot. And um, that seemed, you know, I just kind of inherited his people uh, for, for doing work too. And so it just grew and grew from there. Awesome. Awesome. I actually, uh, I checked out a few of your uh, presentations on, YouTube and and I in some of them in some of them you mentioned a story where a teacher you know dressed you up as a girl because you had long hair when you were in elementary school and there was a time where you wouldn't speak for a, a little period of time in third grade just because of perceived persecution did did those experiences fuel this um, path of service you know in in hopes that less people experience these types of situations um yes I mean I had a number of painful experiences with overt racism. And I think even, even at the implicit level, like going to school for 13 years in the K-12 environment, and just none of it had anything to do with me. And so the unspoken message through the absent narratives was that you and yours just aren't important and aren't relevant and don't matter. And it just felt like the continuation of an age-old assault on my very way of being. And so, you know, I rebelled against that, but eventually arrived at the determination that I, there was no way out of the racial borderland. There was no way, you know, to avoid this overarching culture and these systems. And something like racism operates at a, you know, macro level, like the smog we all breathe, at a meso level which is like the systems and institutions, school districts, things like that, you know, and at a micro level with individual acts. And that ultimately there was no way around it or away from it. I'd have to go through it. And that meant transforming things at the meso level and even working to transform things at the macro level. Um, and so doing, thing, doing work around language revitalization and... Um, bending my efforts towards, you know, the immersion school development and things like that has been part of the work, not just to pro provide an interruption, but a true disruption 
of the environments that deny Native kids their indigeneity. Yeah, and I was curious about, you know, what you would say to, you know, somebody who's experiencing that today, if, you know, if they're being singled out because they're the only Native kid in class or something like that. Oh, yeah, um, which is common. I mean, I, I even have to coach my own kids through this stuff. You know, I got one this year. He's like, I'm the only Native kid in my AP classes. And I was like, just keep hanging in there. I, I feel two things. You know, on the one hand, while it's true we all get dealt a certain hand of cards in life, and no two people get exactly the same cards. Uh, and what cards you get dealt are sorted and filtered by your race, gender, economic situation, and so forth. You pick up your cards, and on the one hand, you got to play them the best way that you can. You know, you get one shot at 100 years, and you got to do the best you can. At the same time, if that's all I told my kids, I feel like I would essentially be telling them how to be really good little oppressors because the systems themselves are so fundamentally oppressive and so fundamentally geared towards assimilating us. So that's insufficient. We also need to work to change the system so that everyone has a better shot at more equitable cards. And to me, I feel like I have to divide my efforts both ways. Like, of course, you know, I have to try to excel and, you know, take care of my responsibilities and things like that. But I also have to work to change the system, um, to work towards racial equity, to, you know, preserve and revitalize our language and keep our cultural practices strong. You know, if I didn't work towards higher purpose, you know, I would just be a really effective oppressor. Dang, that is really significant. Well I know, I feel that way sometimes too. It's like, how do you, how do you continue on in, you know, society? <laughs> Like the way things are just yeah. set up, you know, money with, you know, slave owners on them and like all these just built in oppressive white supremacist culture systems that we have. Um, but also, yeah. you know, try to work to somehow make things better and live your truth yeah. and, you know, your culture and stuff like that is a lot of times it seems like there's just this constant conflict. Um that can be exhausting. <laughs> it can. And there have been a lot of great thinkers who've talked about it. You know, James Baldwin talked about dual consciousness. Like you spend time, for him, he was saying, I spend time in whiteness and, and I start to think and become and act that, you know. And then I come back to my affinity group, for him, a black affinity space, you know. And, and the going back and forth is like this dual consciousness. And it evokes the questions like, who am I and where do I fit in and what do I do? Um, and I've heard other people describe it, you know, in an indigenous context, like we're living in two worlds, um, even though it's just one world. And so it can be hard to navigate. Um, and at the same time, that that is a true challenge, you know, like things like money, you know, Oh, it drives and corrupts so many things that, that people try to do. But 
in some ways it's kind of like health too, in that, you know, having it might be no guarantee of happiness, but the absence of it can make you completely miserable. And in some ways, you know, this has been one of the, the challenges for tribes and for individual people is that um, it feels like language and culture learning is a luxury after dealing with food, clothing, shelter, you know, substance abuse, suicide prevention, educational initiatives. Then if there's a little money or a little time left over at the end of your very busy day, go ahead and do something with language and it's cute, you know, rather than something very central. And for me, you know, I think first of all, physical, mental, cultural health are all deeply intertwined. And this should be central for all of those reasons. And second of all, you don't have to find an extra, you know, half hour at the end of your day if you weave it into everything you do throughout the day. It's not a question of like, what can you do with Ojibwe language? What can't you do with Ojibwe language? And, and there's nothing you can't do with the language. So instead of like, teaching the kids in English all day, every day, and then throw a little Ojibwe at them, how about teach them the math in Ojibwe, teach them the science in Ojibwe. They'll get the math, they'll get the science, and they'll get their language all at the same time. You know, It's like instead of me finding extra time to teach my kids something after ceremonies are over, I bring them to ceremonies and bring them in and put them in the middle of the work and they can have family time and ceremony time at the same time, you know? And so it's just more efficient. Um, you can run your dining room table, you know, with Ojibwe words taped on the salt shaker and even some pet phrases, like I'll do this with my kids, you know, to get up, I'll make them say that the food's delicious. Can I please be excused? And when they want to watch TV, then can I be excused to watch TV? But they have to do it in Ojibwe. You know, so they're like, oh, miigwech, minopogwadin da bagadinaguna. Aha. You know, and daganawabandana mazanate sitchigan. Aha. You know, and so then you know they're going to remember those words because they want to do those things. <laughs> exactly. Can I go on Minecraft? You know, <laughs> sorry. Right. <laughs> so what is next for you? What's, what's coming up in the future, whether it's short term or, or long term? Well, some things are like, you know, until I kick the bucket efforts. So that includes my spiritual service to the people. That's, that's a permanent um, part of who I am and what I do. Uh, working at the languages too. Uh, you know, I tend to stay at Bemidji State University uh, and continue teaching there. Um, and I intend to continue writing Ojibwe books um, I have some other books and projects that I'm working on too right now. So I've got another one that we're, I'm just starting to work on that's kind of exploring a little bit about our cultural toolbox. I, I don't want to do any kind of work that would be like culture for sale or, you know, a way for people to walk around their elders and go get something from a book. But it's more like, you know, our set in terms of the seasons and the way we harvest and our kind of relationship with the natural world kind of stuff. Um, and it's, yeah, there'll be lots of 
lots of stuff with the kids in there, like just kind of how I show them, you know, that part of our ways. So I, I, I'm looking forward to that as kind of a compliment to, um, that's the other side of the Language Warriors Manifesto, which is kind of the, the cultural toolbox as well as the language toolbox. And then, yeah, I've got, you know, I, I do a lot of work in racial equity and cultural competency. So that's, you know, some of that I'm doing talks or gigs, but I've got some, you know, publication work that I want to do too. And I'm seeing more and more the power of reaching directly out to young people. So we got a young reader edition of my new book or my book, Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask. So that'll be coming out here in a couple of months. So yeah, projects galore. Awesome. I was actually curious about uh, that, the, the book you mentioned, um, Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Afraid to Ask. Uh, that was published, what, like seven years ago, 2013, or maybe a little right. bit earlier? Have, are there things that you want to add to that book now? Or are you thinking about making do, making a second edition or anything like that? I know you're doing the kids' book, but, but yeah. So yeah, there was so much that happened. You know, Dakota Access Pipeline. There was that confrontation at the Lincoln Memorial. My thinking about some things has shifted a little bit. Um, so yeah, even with the young reader edition, it, it's designed for high school students, and we actually expanded the content quite a bit over what was in the first edition. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, there's a lot more that I would put in there. Cool. Awesome. Can't wait. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, Chimi Gwech for joining us today. Very much appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to meet you both. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it will give me a whole new perspective working with, uh, with yeah. Poppy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ho- hopefully he has plenty of more, yeah, crazy stories to tell. <laughs> Miigwech. Yeah. yeah yes, Miigwech. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Okay, cool. Gigawaman. Aha. Awesome. Yeah. I really I really liked when Anton was talking about treating the Ojibwe language not as, you know, an add-on or as something mm-hmm. extra, but as central um, in your daily life. Yeah. And so now that I'm rethinking about, you know, how am I learning the language um, and, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Not binging. Cramming. <laughs> when I'm cramming, yeah, cramming. Uh, before class, I'm like, you know, I shouldn't do this. Um, there's got to be a better yeah. way. So now it's like, yeah, if I take it little by little and, you know, think of the vocabulary of my daily life or the sentences that I could use in my daily life, um, maybe I'll make a little more progress, yeah. <laughs> lasting progress. <laughs> That's definitely true because... Most of what I did in college was mm-hmm. cramming, was last minute, you know, like <laughs> just try to memorize as much stuff as possible. And that just, yeah. you know, that, that can leave you very quickly. So it's good to have that, you know, constant, constant uh, language mm-hmm. learning happening. Yeah. Sure. He even calls him Poppy. <laughs> 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 Yeah. 
Yeah, actually, I was talking to, to Dad a little bit before, you know, we started this this episode today, you know, just talking to him about language and things like that. And he was, he, he said that as long as you're trying, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's good. As long as you're trying, you know, the, the elders won't make fun of you. If they hear you mess up a word, they'll be happy that they're just hearing you yeah. try. So don't be, you know, discouraged if you're, if you're just, try, if you're starting out or even if you're like us who have been <laughs> exposed to it for a long time and are still trying to get it. Don't be discouraged, you know, keep it going. And I think Anton, uh, you know, conveyed that message as well. Just keep, keep Absolutely. trying. So Chimigwech, Dr. Anton Troyer, yeah. really appreciate your valuable wisdom and words today. Yes, Chimigwech to Anton Troyer, a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University and an author of many books. He grew up in Leech Lake and works to preserve the Ojibwe language, culture, and a lot more. Woo! This is Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine, produced by Minnesota Native News with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. If you'd like to help us spread the word about Native Lights, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, and every major listening app, as well as minnesotanativenews.org. I'm Cole Primo. And I'm Leah Lem. Miigwech for listening. Keep